following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. All right, good morning. If you can hear my voice, come on back to your seats. Grab your Bibles, please. Glad you braved the weather to come here this morning. I know it's it's a snowstorm out there. Yes, that's right. But grateful for you who are here, and of course we'll pray for those who are not. Um, exciting news if you've been paying attention online. Uh, Amy uh, had her baby uh, on Thursday. It was Thursday evening, I believe. Um, uh, late Thursday night, and uh, so we're grateful for that. Everything uh, seems to have gone well, and they're doing well and recovering at home. So we're going to pray and give thanks to God for that, um, and of course, continued prayer for the others, um, moms who are who are due in successive months to come. Um, we're also going to pray for those who are uh, who are sick. I know there's a lot of us still who are sick, um, and so we're going to intercede for them as well, and then we'll we'll turn our attention to God's word. So let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you for, for, for Arthur. We, we're thankful, God, for uh, your, your provision of a healthy, uh, a beautiful boy that you, you've given to Jake and Amy. Uh, Lord, we pray for their rest and recovery as they enter into parenthood and they, uh, they learn what, what parents have come to, to know and understand that uh, with a lot of great work and effort, much joy is yielded. We pray, God, that, they, uh, that they're able to love one another well. And as they pour their love out now on Arthur, that you would God, begin to bless and nurture Arthur in the faith. That even in these very first days, uh, God, you would begin in Jake and Amy's life to shape a legacy of gospel generations, uh, beginning with Arthur and on, as you have in Jake's life and in Amy's life. Lord, we are prayerful, Lord, as well for uh, those who are still uh, with child. We pray for, for Sandra and for Kathy, for their health and their own rest as their own date draws near, and for provision and nourishment for those families as they depend on you in their season of need and celebration. We also, Lord, give thanks to you for our health, for those who have it, and pray now for those who don't, uh, for those who are, are sick or are caring for sick loved ones. Uh, we ask that you would comfort them and draw them near to your, your presence, uh, that they're able to take time to pray, to read, to study, and to worship you this morning, though not with us in body, uh, indeed with us in spirit. We're grateful to you for many things. We pray, God, that this time of study would be enriching, edifying, and encouraging to us, that we would turn our attention and our hearts, affections to Christ. We would see the gospel and the beauty and the value of his work for us. And uh, as we think over the next several weeks of what it means for Jesus to give himself over to his captors, to lay his own life down, to ultimately be led to the cross and be crucified, uh, stir within our own hearts a desire to, to know 
that Christ well. As Paul would say, to know only Christ and Him crucified. That we would know also the power of His resurrection. So we pray, God, that as we begin this narrative in John's Gospel, our hearts would be open to receiving true joy, even as we see pain and sorrow and suffering poured out on the Son of Man. We love you, Lord, now we pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. We're in John chapter 18. In John 17, you remember, is Jesus' prayer on behalf of his disciples. Sometimes this is called the high priestly prayer. Jesus is interceding for his disciples. He has, over the last several chapters that we've studied together over the last several weeks, given his farewell discourse, his, his final words and instruction to his disciples that they are to carry out and to live out as he leaves. And he prays for them in John 17 because he knows that they will need the, the Lord's guidance and the Spirit's help. And then in verse 1 of chapter 18, we see the beginning of what really is the passion narrative of Jesus. This is the, the chapter now, the last chapter of Jesus' life where the suffering and the passion of Christ begins to unfold in a real way. Of course, we've been getting to this point throughout the whole gospel. Uh, there's already been attempts to confront and arrest Jesus by the Jews unsuccessfully. There's been other plots to kill him, and now we've come to the fruition of those plots against him, where Jesus has sent Judas out to go and fetch the authorities, we see him now bring those authorities to Jesus to be arrested. So let's turn our attention to chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. We'll stop there. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's easy to pass over this narrative, a few short verses, into Jesus' trial, into his Via Della Rosa to the cross, to his crucifixion, to his resurrection. In just a few short chapters, very little is spent here in John's gospel on his arrest. Much was spent over the last several chapters on his last words, will and testament, as it were, to his disciples. But here we get a small glimpse of Jesus' willingness and the beginning of his submission to the Father's will that he would die. There's a painting of this scene that I've really come to adore. It was painted by an Italian Renaissance painter named Caravaggio, which is probably not how you pronounce his name, but one of my favorite painters. And this particular painting called The Taking of Christ is a, a still life of this particular scene of Jesus' arrest and betrayal of Judas. And the masterpiece of Caravaggio is that he's able to capture a moment in time in a, in a way that few others seem to do. Not only that, but he paints with such vivid light and contrast that if you care to, you're really instantly transported into the scene. You can feel the emotion. It's said that Caravaggio even painted himself into the picture as Peter, one who would hold the lantern and soon come to deny Christ. There we see Judas and Jesus embrace, of course, referring to the kiss that signals to the authorities that Jesus is the one whom they are to arrest. We see a clamoring for Jesus. We see, presumably, John in the background trying to stop or maybe run away from being arrested himself. All of this emotion is captured in this painting that's over 400 years old. But one of the unique things about this painting, and you could Google it when you get home, is right in the middle of this painting is a large piece of the Roman soldier's armor, which, whether or not it's realistic to the time, as Italian painters aren't typically historically accurate in their descriptions, is reflective. And there's an opportunity, of course, for Caravaggio to play into the light. There's a beautiful, shining reflection of light from this soldier's armor. But when you begin to think about it, it's said that Caravaggio probably meant this to be an opportunity of reflection. As if you look in the old soldier's armor, it's a mirror held back to yourself. In the very act of the betrayal of Jesus, in the very act of his arrest, you see and ought to see in that moment what Jesus is doing for you or because of you. Caravaggio captured something that I think our passage here draws to our attention, that Jesus is stepping into a world now which is totally unique to anything he's ever experienced. We have to remember, of course, that Jesus is not just man, but God. And God now, in human form, is being arrested by men whom he created and will be led and put on trial 
and crucified. God, the maker of heaven and earth, through whom, for whom, and by whom all things were made, Jesus will be crucified by the world he came to save. Well, when we think about the arrest of Jesus, we're thinking about really the beginning of Jesus' willingness to lay his life down. All that he has said, promised, foretold, prophesied is now coming to fruition right now in this moment. The arrest of Jesus, of course, is a bit of a double entendre. We know that Jesus is being arrested physically, but as we read this passage, we see that Jesus, in many ways, is doing the arresting himself. He threw back the, the Roman centurions by his own words. He's, in one sense, flabbergasted those who would come to arrest him. He's put into disarray the order, and will continue to do so, of those who would question him and align him. Jesus will not be arrested, but do the arresting himself. My hope this morning in our brief study of this passage is that you, friends, would be also arrested by Jesus. That what we see in this small, brief depiction of, of Jesus' submission to the Father's will would awaken you to the Lordship of Christ. This is the, the last hours of Jesus' life. He is in the midnight of his life. And it is in this moment, perhaps more than others, we see most clearly his lordship, his deity, his right to rule and reign as the Son of God. Now, Jesus' passion in, in the book of John is all about Jesus' lordship. This is really why why John is writing the gospel. Remember, we've noted it several times now in John chapter 20. He says that he's writing this letter, this gospel, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and by believing, have eternal life. John's whole purpose in writing his gospel, knowing of the existence of the other three, is writing so that he can elevate and make very clear the deity of Christ, his lordship above all things. He is the son of the living God. And so to do this, he draws out with different, uh, <clears throat> with different ways of, of writing, contrast, symbolism, irony, the play between dark and light of good and evil. What we have, of course, in the, the next several chapters, Jesus' arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his treatment by a, a jeering crowd and by cruel authorities is really a picture or a masterclass in devotion and, and resolve of an unflinching willingness to do all that the Father has commanded that he do, to fulfill the purposes of redemption and to do so in a way that only omniscience and only divine sovereignty could do so. It's to show that Jesus alone could have been the one to do this. That Jesus alone as the Son of God was sufficient to provide the atonement for our sins. And so as the drama 
of Jesus' arrest is unfolding here in these first 12 verses. The dominant tone that we should be seeing that John records is not one of surprise or of revolt or even of tragedy, all of which the disciples themselves would so quickly assume. Peter goes to, to fight, the others go to run. In other gospels we see of a naked boy who runs in a self-humiliating sort of way. No, the dominant theme here is not surprise or revolt or tragedy, but of control. Jesus' lordship means that he is in complete control of what is happening and unfolding. Jesus, it says as he moves forward, knows all that will happen to him. And yet he walks faithfully into the heat of battle. And so in this short scene, as we consider Jesus' lordship, we'll see it in three ways. We'll see his divine resolve or commitment to the Father's will. We'll see his divine power as the Son of God. And we'll see his divine love for his people. And we're going to take these together over the next several sections of these verses to proclaim and to build a picture of Jesus as sovereign king. That's setting up the theme that will really dominate all of the rest of the passion narrative. John will be clear that Jesus, though he is mocked, beaten, and killed, is in fact the king of the Jews, is in fact the king of the world. Let's consider firstly the place that Jesus goes in verse 1. It says, when he had spoken these things, he went out with his disciples, that is from the upper room, after his instructions and prayer, he leaves and goes out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. This wasn't unusual now for Jesus at this point. Luke records that in his time in Jerusalem in this last week, Every night he would go to the garden and he would pray. He would go there to pray and to instruct his disciples, Judas being with him. And so this was his custom, it says. He would do so every evening to go to pray and to instruct his disciples. This was a place of Jesus' refuge in these last hours. He takes his disciples there. We get a fuller picture in other Gospels of the garden of Gethsemane the, on the Mount of Olives, which is a olive press, where he prays, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not your will, not my will, but yours be done. He prays and asks for his disciples to pray with him, but they continue to fall asleep as he cries out in, in agony, in pain, in distress. Again, Luke records that he began to sweat drops of blood. This is how great the pressure and burden of these final moments are. But here, John doesn't record much, if any, of that. Here, he's trying to make clear that Jesus is intentional at this point with what he's doing. This isn't out of habit or convenience, but Jesus is walking to the garden for the last time in order that he may meet Judas there. John, of course, no doubt picks up on Jesus' subtle symbolism here in his choice to pray in the garden up on the Mount of Olives. 
he's tying the illusion here of Christ's resolve to pray, his resolve for obedience to the second Adam, to the requirement of sacrifice for the deliverance of God's people. Now this, this is unique and you may not pick this up. What do you know of the brook Kidron? Well, you may know, call it from David as he flees from Absalom and others who are killing him, takes him and his own men across this very valley to escape up into the mountains that he may hide from his, uh, his son. But beyond this, we understand that in this time of the temple, the sacrifices during Passover, which is when Jesus here is having his meal, would be filled with the sacrifices of the Paschal Lamb. In fact, one census done 30 years after around this date puts the number of sacrifices somewhere in the 200,000s. It was a lot of blood. And they would put the lamb on the altar. They would kill the lamb. The blood would run down channels out the back of the temple and down into this valley, which was mostly dry, except for certain rainy seasons. And it was at this point where the blood would be running through this valley that Jesus and his disciples, instead of going up and around to Bethany and through, goes through the valley, walking through the channels of blood that would run through it. Jesus, of course, knows this. And John picks up on Jesus' symbolism. The temple stands there, sacrificing lambs to celebrate the deliverance of God's people on the day of Exodus. And he does so by going to a garden where God's people first fell under the condemnation and curse of sin. And it's these two pictures of the garden and of the sacrifice of the lamb that are coming together just in this short scene as they walk across the valley Kidron into the garden where Jesus would take on the role of the second Adam, perfectly obedient to the Father. And he would take on the role of the Paschal Lamb, perfect and spotless sacrifice for the sins of his people. This, of course, wasn't the first time an enemy of a son of God would come into a garden to seek to destroy and defeat his opponent. We recall the snake crept into the garden to deceive Adam and Eve. And where Adam failed, Jesus is committed and resolved to succeed. Jesus will do what Adam did not do. And where a sword was drawn to mark man's rebellion against God after they were expelled from the garden, here we see a sword is put away to mark man's redemption through Jesus' own blood. Just for a moment, consider the resolve of Christ in that moment to walk through the valley flowing with blood, to know of the sacrifices that are happening just beyond the valley that he himself will give himself for. Up into the garden with the responsibility of man and his redemption on his shoulders. All of this does not cause him to waver or doubt. Even in the garden as he prays in agony, we are not to take his desire that the cup would pass as an unwillingness to do what the Father has commanded him. But rather, we see in all of this the resolve of Christ as he walks with his disciples through Kidron, flowing with blood, 
knowing that soon he will lay down his own life as a sacrifice for the deliverance of sin. He enters the garden gates with his disciples, prepared to obey the Father even to the point of death. He is resolved. And where does this resolve come from? Well, he prays to such effect in verse 24 of 17, a few verses up. Father, I desire that they, his disciples, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me and have made known to them your name that I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. It was after these words, this prayer was spoken and prayed, was he resolved then to get up and go through the valley to the garden to pray. The resolve for this comes from God. The love of God for the Son and the Son's love of the Father. It comes from the joy of the glory of Christ being put on full display through his disciples that his glory would be made known both through his sacrifice and his disciples' own joy as they have fellowship with one another and with God. So this resolve of Christ to go and to walk through this valley, to be the lamb that would take away the sins of the world, to go and take on the responsibility to redeem all mankind as Adam did not do or where Adam failed, Jesus resolves himself to that task. So this place, the garden, is significant. The book of Genesis opens in a garden. The book of Revelation closes with a garden. And Jesus' work takes place in a garden. So this is not insignificant, and John draws attention to that. As we continue on in verses 2 through 3, we see now the betrayal of Christ come to full fruition. He had earlier dismissed Judas to go and do what he was needing to do. It says that now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with the disciples. And Judas had procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and he went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. He had guided this group of, uh, of soldiers, numbering perhaps in the hundreds, to arrest Jesus there with the temple guards and officials. It was really the, the Jewish uh, guards and, and temple officials who were doing the arresting, but brought along the Roman officials because they needed to keep the peace. It was their job, after all, to make sure a riot wouldn't break out by arresting somebody of Jesus' popularity and stature at this point. We soon come to find out that all of that was for nothing, for Jesus would give himself willingly to his betrayer. But we see that Judas here has knowledge of Jesus' place of retreat, not only because he has gone there with Jesus, but because he has conspired in his own heart to take him into custody. He has planned for this. And where Jesus before has gone to the garden to pray, now he goes to the garden to meet with Judas. He knows what will take place, and so he goes to the place of meeting. We think about Judas's betrayal here and his knowledge of Jesus's place of retreat. We often think about the violation and the intrusion of 
death upon the Son of God at the hands of his enemy. This happens because Judas is there, and John wants to draw this out very clearly. Notice what he says in verse 6. Excuse me, in verse 5. Jesus said to them, I am he, and Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. John wants to single out Judas as the one who betrayed Christ. This is important because Judas here is representing not just himself, but in John's mind is representing all of the forces of evil opposed to Christ in this moment. We see both Jews and Gentiles colluding together to arrest and kill the Son of God. And it is Judas here who we saw earlier was possessed or filled by the devil to go and do what he was going to do. We see that Judas is really just a picture for us of the intrusion of death and evil in opposition to the Son of God. And so the timing at night, in the place, in the garden, away from the crowds, the timing and place of the arrest here reveals, in many ways, the craftiness of Jesus' enemies. And in light of Judas's representation of evil, the craftiness of sin in our enemy. See, John records the events here intending for us the, to recognize fully the, the futility of, of the band of soldiers that would come with their torches and weapons, that they would come to him in darkness to snuff out the light of the world, that they would come with their swords drawn who would in due course come to beat all swords into plowshares. This is not the way the Son of God will be taken and indeed, he's not taken by force, but gives himself willingly. Then comes the arrest in verses 4 and onward. He's asked, he asks who they seek, and he answers, Jesus of Nazareth. He replies to them, I am he. And of course, they draw back and fall to the ground. He asks this again, and they reply again, Jesus of Nazareth. And so he says, I am he. If you seek me, let these men go. Jesus, we see, comes forward. He is not approached or singled out. He is not cornered or trapped. Jesus, we see in verse 4, comes forward willingly. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen, came forward to them. He walked toward them. And asked them who they, whom they sought. This is, this is Jesus' omniscience on full display here. Knowing what would happen to him. Knowing all that the Father is about to command him to obediently submit to. Jesus' resolve, again, is on display. He comes forward to meet Jesus and his captors. Because he is resolved to do all that the Father commands. We see earlier in John chapter 10, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And this charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus knows that to do what the Father has commanded him to do, he must give himself willingly to those who would do him harm. And so he says in chapter 10, 
I will lay down my life. No one takes it from me. So we see him doing exactly what he said he would do. Here in verse 4, he approaches them. He does not run or hide or cower in shame or fear. Christ, to do all that the Father has given him to do, walks forward. Friends, this is a comfort to us knowing that he did not go to the cross unwillingly. He did not shake and tremble in fear of what the cross would accomplish for us but that he confidently endured the cross, despised its shame, because there was joy that he had, which was set before him. No one takes his life. He will lay it down, and he does so now. He asks the question to them, whom do you seek? And Jesus wasn't being dramatic here. He knew the answer, of course, and he wasn't trying to heighten the drama, but rather, I think, for his disciples' sake, he asked the question in order to underscore the centrality and the, really the necessity of Jesus himself in the work of redemption that's to be accomplished. It can be done by no other. It will be not their price to pay for their freedom or their deliverance, but it will be Jesus and Jesus alone. We also see that he does this in order to single out that he alone is to be arrested and therefore secure their own freedom. So he's here trying to teach his disciples, even in the moment of his own arrest, that he is committed to their cause and to their good. He underscores for them that without his willingness to go, there is no redemption. That they are unable and indeed will ultimately be unwilling to lay down their own life in atonement for their sins. It can be only Jesus. It can be only the Son of God. Only the perfect spotless lamb who will give himself willingly as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. It can only be Christ. This, of course, strengthens the resolve of Christ to move toward his captors and to come closer to the hour of his death. When he says, whom do you seek? There is only one answer. And he answers, I am he. This, of course, is a clear reference to that I am, that I am statement that God tells Moses is his name in Exodus chapter 3 there in the burning bush. And Jesus here has spoken several I am statements in John. But here we see a clear and palpable reaction, physically react, reacting to this statement. This is a curious part of the Verse, and I have to admit, in the beginning, I was puzzled as to why they would fall back. There's no description of an earthquake or of a wind. He simply says, I am he, and they drew back and fell to the ground. Gentiles who don't know God as Yahweh, they don't know him as the one who is I am. They may have some knowledge of the the, the Jews and their religion, but they hear Jesus speak, declare that he is, and they fall. They fall backward, as if repelled by this statement. My best guess, and really that's what it is, is that the same voice of Jesus that commanded the seas 
to be still and Lazarus to walk out of his tomb that would speak and heal diseases and speak and forgive sins now speaks again powerfully. And this force is felt and it's immediately understood by all those who are there that Jesus is the great I am. There's no denying or misunderstanding that this is exactly who he has claimed to be. If there's any doubt left in their minds, we can ask the Roman guard there at the end of the cross, who surely believes that this was the Son of God. We see here that second picture of Jesus' sovereignty, of his divine power. Notice just in his word, he has the power to command and disarm all earthly powers on full display here in the moment of his weakness. In the moment of his humiliation, he speaks and all those who carry swords and torches and opposition against him fall to the ground with a word. We can't begin to plumb the depth of the sovereign and powerful name of Christ and all that he is as the Son of God. But here we see a small glimpse, I think, that John wants us to understand that we cannot get around that the Son of God is about to be crucified. That the the incarnate word of God, which he had mentioned in chapter 1, is about to meet a criminal's death. He asks them again. They tell him they're looking for Jesus. And he says, that's who I am. So therefore, let these men go. There in verse 8. I told you that I'm he, so if you seek me, let them go. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken or prayed in John 17, of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. This is what Luther would call a a miracle that Jesus would provide and give a provision and protection for his disciples even now. They ostensibly were to also be arrested, as we see later when others would question the disciples, like Peter, if they were one of his followers. He would say, of course, no. But to be associated with Jesus at this point was very dangerous. And Jesus knew this. And so he, by underscoring the necessity and the centrality of him and him alone, secures for them their fulfillment of his prayer and their safety. What's curious about this is that at the moment of his arrest, all the way up until the moment of his death, Jesus is committed to loving and providing for his disciples. Even his enemies at this point. On the cross, he prays for them. He gives instruction and edification to his disciples who are there. His love for his disciples never abates, but only intensifies as he goes to the cross. In fact, I would submit that as he was led to the cross and the wrath of God was being poured out on him, that is, human separation from the Father, the thing that really resolved him to go was this deep and powerful love for his people that his father had given to him. And so just as he prayed for their intercession, he now acts for their intercession. Let these men go. And so they do. But of course, not before Peter begins to act rather rashly. 
Verse 10, and Simon Peter has a sword, this is like a small dagger, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? It's interesting to see the other parallels in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where it's recorded what Jesus says. These are all slightly different. In one sense, Jesus tells Peter, don't you know I have a whole host of angels that can defend me? As if to say, what you're doing is not enough. But he also says that those who live by the sword shall die by the sword. We also see in Luke that the man's ear is healed. Again, but John John doesn't record those details. He simply says to Jesus, says to Peter, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Remember John's point, that Jesus is in control, that he is willingly laying his own life down. He is the Son of God. He will not be arrested, but will arrest others by his willingness to lay his life. See, Christ hasn't come to wage war against men. He has come to die. He had come on his mission to give himself as a ransom for many. That was his mission. And to wage war against those who would seek to do him harm in this life was to go contrary to the mission that he had been given by the Father to do. And so Peter's rashness here is really meant to highlight the, the uniqueness, or some might say the, the foolishness, of, of God's plan to redeem his people this way. It was certainly foolish to the Greeks who understood that a God would never become flesh and then never die. And it was certainly a stumbling block to the Jews who would never see their Messiah be led into defeat instead of overcoming the enemy and establishing their kingdom with an iron fist if needed. No, this is a unique and to some degree foolish plan of God. Peter was acting naturally. Jesus was acting according to God's plan. He says the cup of God's wrath must be consumed by him to the very last drop. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is necessary. All of the Father's wrath against sin and unrighteousness will be poured out on Christ so that his wrath against sin and unrighteousness is satisfied. There is not a drop of God's wrath that remains in the cup, in the cup that is not unsatisfied, or that is not satisfied. When Jesus says that he has come to drink the cup the Father has given me. He means that he will lay down his sword. He gives his hands to be arrested. He will be led, and he will suffer and die. This is a, a small glimpse but we see that Jesus, as the sovereign Son of God, has clearly every intention to fulfill God's purposes by dying for his people. He has a divine resolve to do exactly what God had told him to do, to fulfill the mission that he has come to accomplish. He shows for us the divine love and care for his people that never abates as it gets closer to the cross, you even see a glimpse of his power that will be accomplished in his own death when he speaks his name and the others fall. But the real question 
for us is why does the story of Jesus' arrest matter to us? Why is it important that we spend time considering the Christ here in the garden, arrested and betrayed? I really want to give you two answers to that question. First, we should see and know and understand that Christ was resolved to do God's work, God's way. That he, he didn't find a way to circumvent God's plans for him to die, but knew that the only way to accomplish God's purpose was to do it through his own death, and that there was no one else but God himself to accomplish it. There was no shrinking back from his task. There was no, no questioning God's purposes. There was only resolve and commitment to do God's work, God's way. He was going to drink the bitter cup of God's wrath completely. Friends, we need to understand that God's work, your way, or any other way, doesn't produce the kind of results that God intends for you. Well, Jesus knows that the only way to secure the redemption and the forgiveness of our sins is through the shedding of his own blood. And he empowers us by sending us to the Spirit and models for us what it looks like to give himself completely to the Father's will so that we will not find our own ways to circumvent those purposes, but to do it in the way that God has led us. God's work, your way, will not bring the results of God's promises and purposes for your life. You may know that God has called you to ministry, to mission field, to be a father or a mother, to be a kind of neighbor, to be a blessing in one way or another. But to circumvent that blessing through your own doing will not reap the reward or yield the results that God intends to bring about through your faithful obedience through suffering. Think of Jesus' temptation by the devil in the wilderness. The temptations, the heart of the temptations, were that Jesus could simply have what he wanted without working for them. The food, the safety, all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus knew that he could have any one of those without asking for them. The temptations, of course, were really that he would circumvent the cross and go straight to the crown. But Jesus doesn't. He knows that the only way through to the crown is to the, through the cross. And so he models for us in our own life, friends, that we have to recognize that often God's way is through suffering. God's way is through lowliness. God's way is through the hard steps of faith that lead us into our own Gethsemane that leads us on our own Via Dolorosa to bear our own cross. And when we commit and resolve ourselves like Christ to do his work his way, not our own or the world's way, that is when we see the purposes of God come to fruition in our lives and in the world. What is God's way? God's way is humility. God's way is prayer. God's way is obedience. God's way is faith. Examine your life, friends, and ask, where am I walking faithfully in the difficult seasons and parts of my life? And where have I attempted to circumvent those difficult steps that I must take? How am I trying to shortcut to God's blessings and purposes like Abraham did with Hagar 
where I should be faithful, patient, waiting, trusting, and obeying? That answer, of course, may only come through introspection or, if you're honest, through conversation at your community group. But to consider what it looks like to do God's work, God's way, we look to Christ, who was resolved to go to the cross despite the difficulties and the agonies it would include. We referenced this earlier, but Hebrews 12 says that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, so let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the, God, of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Why? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. For in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. The author here is putting Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, the model that we are to follow and look to in our own life as one that we can emulate so that we don't grow weary or faint-hearted. When we see that he had joy set before him to endure the cross, we do not grow weary or faint-hearted in our own endurance of the crosses that we must bear, of the difficulties of our life, of the suffering, the persecution, the struggles, the anxieties, whatever it may be that tempts you to walk away from God or to shortcut your way around God's purposes for you, we are to look to Jesus if we are not to grow weary or faint-hearted. So why does the story of Jesus' arrest matter today? We see it because his resolve empowers us to be faithful and to not shrink back from those difficult steps of faith we must take. We know that Jesus drank the bitter cup of God's wrath for us, but there are many ways in which we drink the cup of God's wrath as well or the discipline. We see that the disciples who followed Jesus would also, other than John, drink God's wrath through persecution, not as an atonement for sin, but as a way to show their devotion to him. Christ resolved to do God's work God's way, and so set an example for all of us to not sidestep, shortcut, or circumvent God's purposes. But lastly, the story matters because in Jesus' darkest hour, he was still in control of his own destiny. He was never, for a moment or a second, not in control of what was happening. There was never a moment where Judas could have grabbed him or a soldier could have arrested him that Jesus, in his sovereignty, would not have allowed. Nothing happens without the permission of God. And all things, all authority, was given to Christ so not a single person could move without his sovereign permission. And yet he still went to the cross. He has ordained his own arrest, ordained his own death, and ordained his own suffering. He was always in control. And so it is with our own destiny. Jesus commands our destiny. Jesus, in our own darkest hour, is not only in control of his own, but ours. His sovereignty extends not only to his own autonomy, but over all of the earth. And so in your darkest hour, your life and your destiny is in his control as well. Jesus 
secures for us, as he did for his disciple, our safe passage from harm, from sin. While we may suffer in this life, we are spared the wrath of God. We are spared condemnation from sin. We are spared a life of toil and sorrow and sadness because we have been given in Christ great joy. He controls our destiny. Even when our lives are difficult, we're stressed, we're upset, we're distraught, Christ is in control. His sovereignty displayed just in this picture and in the rest of his narrative reminds us that there isn't a thing that could happen to us that Jesus not only doesn't know about, but isn't unconcerned with, isn't in control of, it isn't working for our good. This is where Paul's promise to us should comfort us. All things work together for the good of those who love and are called according to his purpose. If Jesus is in control of his own destiny and through that is led to the cross, how much more will he provide and secure for us safe passage in this life? That is great comfort and joy we should take when we are faced with trials of various kinds. James will remind us to count that joy. Christ is our example. Resolve to do God's work God's way and resolve to do it because he is in control of all things. Friends, we worship a sovereign God. We do not have one that is unable to control the events of our lives, unable to intervene when we pray, unable to understand and do something about our problems or our sadnesses or sorrows, unable to act when we need him to. No, he is able in every way to be for us exactly what we need because he is the son of the living God. The story of Jesus' arrest matters for us, not simply because it means that he can go to the cross and die for our sins, which it certainly does, but it matters because we see in this his resolve to the will of the Father. But we also take comfort in the fact that because he is in control of all things, our lives do not escape it. Let's, let's pray. Father, we ask God that the time remaining this morning, we, we are really f- felt and moved by that truth that our lives are in your hands and that Christ, the risen King, commands our destiny, as the song says. We pray, God, that our hearts would be tender to this truth, that God in the flesh would willingly lay his life down as a sacrifice for a world that despises him. That Christ would be motivated for love, that he endured all things, scorn, hostility against him, that he would shed his own blood. Father, we ask uh, now that the pictures of Jesus that we we see in the text of his his divine resolution to the cross, 
of his power and of his love, that we would be comforted. Recent sermons are released are under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. Never if you'd like to learn more that. or listen to past sermons, please visit but us at foundationfxbg.com. And our salvation committed himself to the cross. We thank you for all this. As always, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.